Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Good evening and welcome to tonight's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Greg Dalton, Vice President of the Commonwealth Club and founder of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Our distinguished guest today is Dan Sperling, founding director of the Institute of Transportation Studies at UC Davis and a member of the California Air Resources Board. He is also co-author of Two Billion Cars, Driving Towards Sustainability. Within 20 years, the number of cars driving around our Earth will double to two billion. That will have profound implications for our cities, our climate, public health, and way of life. Yet Mr. Sperling contends there is much to be hopeful about if we, as Californians and Americans and citizens of the world, act now. Please welcome Dan Sperling. Well, Dan, thanks, and welcome. And I know you were on the Daily Show yesterday, so I'd like to uh, welcome you back. Must have been a lot of fun. Thank you. I'm going to get used to you not being Jon Stewart, but I'll... I, uh, I, I promise no not joke. to swear or make funny faces if you promise not to cuss. Well, we could, okay. Um, well, let's start with uh, something that's, that's uh, on a lot of the press these days, and that, that is the, uh, the bailout of, of the auto industry um, that seems to be going forward. Uh, but first, you write that the, under virtually every scenario, the number of cars will double, uh, is it by, what, 2030? Mm-hmm. Or so, yes. do you think it was right to bail out the American auto companies the way that happened? Well, you know, this bailout issue is a very difficult one, and and it goes way beyond science, and uh, it's very difficult to answer that. I, you know, in the conversation with John Stewart, he was very clear that he thought we should not bail them out, and that we should revamp the whole industry and depend on startups and and look for innovation in other places. Uh, It's a temptation, you know, to believe that and to say that. But these companies are huge companies employing large amounts of large numbers of people. The region, the economic impacts of those companies disappearing would be dramatic, especially in regions where the economic impact is already, there's already a depression and it's not clear how, I mean, it, we should talk about this question of how do you really get change and innovation. I think we're going to do that. And whether you can get it with some of the existing companies or whether to what extent we need entirely new companies to, to uh, stimulate, motivate that change. Well, you mentioned jobs, and one of the things in your book that really caught my eye was that 42% of jobs in the auto sector are actually sales jobs where which presumably sales is a very transferable skill. People can go from selling one thing to another, whereas uh, in most of the jobs, the policy debate around the auto companies, it's always the manufacturing jobs. Whenever we watch TV, it's the factory, the assembly lines that that we see, and we hear about auto workers who would have a harder time uh, learning other skills and and transitioning. So given that profile, um, some people think that the auto industry might just transition to the south and, and, and that they would actually adapt. Um, do you hold that view? Well, I, 
I think there's a, you can paint a scenario. It, it still will be disruptive for the Midwest and the Michigan and Ohio areas uh, for those companies to, to disappear. Um, clearly, those factories are going to be bought up and converted. So I, I, you know, I have to say this is one of the places where I'm very humble about yeah. knowing about what to do. There are, you know, we'll talk about it. I have lots of ideas on what kind of policies are needed to transition the process, and I think we do need to support some of the new technologies and the new companies, but uh, letting big companies die is, is, a, sure. is, is a painful <laughs> thing to conceive. Then do you think that the bailout pushed them or gave the right carrots to uh, help them innovate more and to come up with the types of technologies that get to what you're concerned about, which is the carbon emissions from the transportation sector? Well, the truth is they're not giving a lot of money to the companies. It's certainly, you know, we've gotten used to this idea of billions, you know, not even being that much money. And so, you know, now we're even talking about trillions, right? So there are, we are talking about billions to going to these companies, and they're going as guarantees in some cases. So it's not really a really huge amount of money, but still what we can do and what we should be doing is attaching a lot of conditions we should be requiring, for instance, that the fuel economy does increase in tune with what California is doing, the greenhouse gas standards that California has tried to get adopted, make sure that those go national, that we have a program, maybe a zero-emission or near-zero-emission vehicle technology program that causes them, that requires them to produce many more battery electric, plug-in hybrids, uh, and, and fuel cell electric vehicles. And those are the things that we can do. And, and I'd like to see some other policies. You know, one of the things they complain about is we adopt these policies that force them to build these vehicles, and they say, well, people won't buy them. Yeah. And so what we need to do is align these market forces with the, with the regulations. And one idea, two, uh, two ideas. One is this idea of fee baits, and that is if you buy a car that's very low-emitting, um, very fuel-efficient, you get a rebate. And if you buy one that's a gas guzzler, then you pay a, a fee, and you can make it revenue-neutral. And that would align, that would motivate customers to buy those vehicles that are more fuel-efficient and low greenhouse gas. And another idea is the idea of price floor. You know, let's, let's set a gasoline price floor or oil price floor that uh, provides a target so that people know the price of gasoline is not going to drop down to a dollar a gallon and that they will make decisions. They'll, be an ins they'll know that if they buy that fuel-efficient vehicle, they really will get their money back in the next few years. And, it, and it's also an incentive for the car companies to provide them, and it's an incentive for the technology companies, the battery companies, and, and so on, to produce those technologies. Do you have a price in mind for a floor for gasoline? Well, when I wrote the book, we uh, sent it out in June. <clears throat> uh, we thought three and a half dollars was a good price floor. Uh, <laughs> I think, but I think the idea should be. I think at this point, you know, ha now that I'm in the in the policy process and the political process more as part of ARB, and I see more acutely the challenge of actually getting these rules and policies in place. What I would suggest is setting it even a low number, even $1.50, $1.75. Just get it in place, get people used to the idea, and then we can move it up over time. Uh, so that's, so I'm, I'm, I've, uh, <laughs> I've come to compromise 
and say, let's, let's get these, these rules and policies in place. And where would the revenue go? Would this go for climate mitigation issues? Or there's lots of politicians in Sacramento and other places who'd love to get their hands on uh, some gas tax revenue for the deficit or for infrastructure or other things. Well, I have many ideas on how it could be used. You know, from a political sense, you know, if I was President Obama or Governor Schwarzenegger, I'd say, okay, we're going to do this. And you, you, the Republicans that you know, don't like these kinds of taxes more than others. You figure out how the money will be spent, and you can make it revenue neutral so that all the money can come back to people through uh, income taxes or through other, you know, other ways of getting the money back so that there's, it's not a real uh, tax in that sense. But much better would be to use the money productively, and it could be used to support R&D. It can be used for lower-income people. Um, but the big challenge is is the politic. You know, so many of these ideas are good ideas. You know, a price floor, fee baits. You know, these are no brainers. I mean, these just make sense. We need to use market forces to encourage people to do what's the right thing, what's good for the public interest. And it's really the politics of it that's so difficult getting these things passed. And fortunately, in Sacramento, it's been easier to get some things done than it has been in Washington. Uh, Washington has definitely been lagging. Are there other countries that have Im- that have implemented fee baits or price floors that you, that could be models? Yeah, France France adopted fee baits about two years ago for vehicles, and it's been so successful. Actually, from the government's perspective, it's been too successful because people were very, so responsive to it that they started all buying these very low emitting fuel efficient vehicles. And what was supposed to be a revenue neutral program <laughs> turned out to be a program where the government was actually paying out more, and so they need to. But that's change the, change the numbers. But that's all you do. You change the pivot point. So you just move the point where you yeah, where you set the uh, the you know where you get the money back and where you give it. So that is revenue neutral, um, and and that's what they're doing. In fact, they've said it's so successful that they're now thinking about applying it to other products. You know, and that's a great idea too. You just coming back to this idea of of the restructuring of the auto industry right now in, the, in this time of crisis. Um, you write about the Partnership for a New Generation of Vehicles, which was a previous attempt where the government offered money to the automakers, the Detroit Three. They promised to do some things. Time went by. The presidential administration changed, and it all went away. So what is to prevent that from happening again with Detroit saying, we really, this time, we really mean it. We're going to make clean electric cars. There's another president. Time goes by. The economic crisis goes by, and, and they revert back to the mean. Yeah, you know, you can say that these pro like PNGV, this was a pro- program where the Clinton administration uh, said that we will support the development of advanced technology with the three Detroit companies. And there was an implicit deal, if not an explicit deal, that the government would not push for stronger uh, fuel economy standards. And, you know, the Clinton administration clearly got hoodwinked on that one. Uh, there's almost no one, I think, anymore that's defending it. You know, the best you can say about it is it got the car companies working together and working with government a little more, but that's a pretty weak uh, uh, justification for it. So the real point of that is, and this is what I've come back to, and this is you know where I've come to believe we, 
we need to be moving is we need to put in place these durable policies, these policies that are permanent, stay in place, that you, you may have to tweak the numbers a little, performance standards, price floors. You know, these are permanent things that we can put in place that we don't have to ad hoc keep coming up with new policies or new rules every two years or four years that some new administration comes along. You make these permanent, and they carry over. And we get away from this uh, fuel du jour phenomenon that I call it. You know, it's, we had sin fuels back in the, in the early 1980s, what we now call unconventional oil. We, then, we, then we embraced methanol as the solution, compressed natural gas, battery electric vehicles in the 90s, uh, hydrogen, you know, 2001, 2002, corn ethanol a few years ago was the fuel du jour. Plug-in hybrids are the, the fuel du jour now. And it's just this ad hoc approach. You know, the media gets fascinated with the new technology or the new fuel. Um, politicians get fascinated with a new one. And it just doesn't work. And we need to put in place something that's more permanent and more durable. Isn't that part of also the fact that none of those things have actually taken hold and, and, and become winners? that sort of broken out from the pack, right, that, that they're all kind of jockeying with each other at, at relatively low levels of adoption. So you think that's a policy failure rather than a market failure? Well, it's a failure on many levels. But, you know, a success would be look at Brazil. So Brazil has this uh, where they, make, they have a program where they make ethanol from sugar cane. And they've been doing this since the 70s and even before then. And... When they started this, for decades, when they were doing it, they were the government was subsidizing it, losing money, but this was a durable uh, policy of the government. And, you know, the exact policy instruments you can debate with. But they made a commitment, and there were, there were reasons to do it, you know, economic reasons as well as other reasons. But they made a commitment to it and they, for decades. And it wasn't until a few years ago where it actually became a real winner in terms of being cheaper than gasoline, cheaper than oil, and good for the economy of Brazil, unequivocally good. And we need, you know, we haven't had that kind of leadership uh, here in the United States. We've heard other people, in fact, uh, John Hoffmeister, who was a former uh, CEO of Shell Oil, was here with us a few months ago, who said that energy requires decades, the, the, the time horizon for energy investments and Maybe it's somewhat shorter for, for automobiles than, than, than power plants. But the point was that energy cycles are longer than political cycles. So no political leaders are around long enough to claim credit for an idea that they generate. They want quick hits, things that they can claim credit for in the next election. And uh, some people even argue this is the same for CEOs, that CEOs aren't in, in office long enough uh, for these kinds of long-term things to pay off. So we have a short-term culture, and what you're identifying is, is some long-term needs that are, that are being unmet. Yep. And I'll tell you my favorite policy of the day, um, which hopefully will not be a, a, a policy du jour, <laughs> uh, the low-carbon fuel standard. And this is an idea that came about, it's you know, in, in various ways been around for a while, and Governor Schwarzenegger embraced it a couple of years ago. And uh, the California Air Resources Board is about to adopt it in April as 
you know, I'm making it sound like it will happen. I'm one of the voters on it, so it has at least one vote. Uh, I'm almost certain it is going to pass. And it will be adopted in April. And what it does is it says it's a performance standard for the oil industry and for fuel suppliers. And it says you must reduce the carbon intensity of your fuels, in this case by 10% by 2020. And if you can't do it or you won't do it, then you can make a deal. You can buy the electricity or the natural gas from some other company, uh, or you can buy credits. So it creates a market for credits. And what this does is it gets government out of the business of picking winners. It just says, tells industry, you figure out how to do it, um, but you've got to reduce the carbon intensity. And it puts in place this permanent framework. And so the there's that 10% target for 2020, but then there'll be another target for 2030, 2040, 2050, and, and this policy, uh, if successful, will transform the whole entire uh, oil industry. This will be the, me the principal mechanism for converting oil companies into energy companies and also opening up the market to other fuel providers, including electricity providers. Dan Sperling is a member of the California Air Resources Board, and we're discussing energy and transportation at the Commonwealth Club. We have a skeptic in the audience about the low-carbon fuel standard who asks about uh, Chris Niddle's research at UC Davis, positing that low-carbon fuel standards may result in a net increase in greenhouse gases. Well, Chris is a close colleague and friend of mine, uh, and he's an economist. I should say that, first of all. So they, <laughs> economists like to present these perfect worlds. And so in the analysis that he, he and his colleagues did is they compared a low-carbon fuel standard to a perfect uh, market system and using, for instance, a carbon tax. And, and, and they made some other assumptions that I didn't fully agree with. But, but the basic conclusion is that... Um, if we could do a car, if we could do a really aggressive carbon tax, then it would accomplish the same thing. But I don't see many politicians out there ready to do a really steep tax. And in fact, if you look at his paper carefully, they're talking about needing a $15 gas tax to accomplish the same thing as the low carbon fuel standard would accomplish. So yes, it would be economically more efficient. $15 a gallon? A gallon. Yeah. Um, and that's, see, that's kind of the How point. How many people think that's a good idea? <laughs> but that's kind of the point here is we need to come up with policy instruments that are both politically acceptable as well as effective. And that's where the low-carbon fuel standard fits in here. You mentioned the uh, the oil markets and, and oil, oil companies, and, and you write about the dysfunctional oil markets, global oil markets, and say that, that policy in the U.S. is driven towards three things, keeping prices low for consumers, increasing U.S. production, and keeping global markets open. So let's talk a little bit about the dysfunction of the oil markets and, and how they might be reformed. Well, you know, the first thing to say is the oil companies, we have this situation where the oil companies are very well-run companies. You know, they, they, given the environment they operate in, they're very smart, they make good investments to get a return on their investment. But what they're doing is not in the public interest. And the problem is that we have, this is a case where we need to align the public interest with the interest, in this case, the corporate interest and the private interest. You have a situation where 
80 to 90 percent of all the oil in the world is controlled by national oil companies. So the Chevrons and Exxons of the world, they, they don't even have access to much of this oil. And most of these countries that have this oil, they're not operating in a market environment. In fact, most of them are taking most of the money that's generated and using it for their own internal purposes, for domestic purposes, which you know, is good for that country. But they're not investing, investing it back in technology. They're not investing it in terms of expanding production, you know, partly because the social needs and the political needs of the country are so strong. So, you, you know, you go on like this and you, you realize that the world oil market, I mean, everyone, all you have to do is look at the past year. You know, oil prices zoom up to $140. They crash down to $40. This is not rational. Uh, this is not a rational well well-run market. And another way of looking at it is the marginal cost of producing oil. The most, ex- the, the co- the most expensive oil produced in the world today is probably around 30 or $35 a barrel, and that's the tar sands in Canada. Everything else is cheaper, and in places like Saudi Arabia, it costs $5, $10 a barrel. So here we have a market where the price is sometimes as much as $140 when actually the cost is far, far less than that. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's hard to call that a, a, a well-operating market. Do you believe in peak oil? Um, what I believe in is that oil production outside of the OPEC, conventional oil produced outside of the OPEC countries has peaked, is at pretty much at its peak right now. And that means the Mexicos and Brazils and other countries of the world, the United States. But in OPEC, it definitely hasn't peaked. They have a lot more oil there. And then there's a second part to it, and that is that we're just talking about conventional oil. There's vast amounts of unconventional oil. And when I say unconventional, I mean the tar sands, the oil shale, the very heavy oils, and, and even coal that can be converted into liquid. And if you add that up, it's just basically almost unlimited. There's more than enough of that for many, many hundreds of years uh, to supply all of the uh, oil needs we would have. So in, the, in that sense, we're not running out of oil, oil broadly defined. But all of that unconventional oil is very carbon intense. It takes a lot of energy to get it out of the ground. It takes a lot of energy to process it. And so the carbon emissions associated with that unconventional oil is huge. And here we are talking about <clears throat> a 20%, 80% reduction in carbon. It's impossible to achieve that if we make this move towards unconventional oil. And the problem is the oil company, all the incentives for the oil companies are to invest in unconventional oil, and that's what they're doing. And perhaps the most important value of this low-carbon fuel standard is to discourage those investments. And a a friend of mine from an oil company who just retired, he confessed to me, he said, in his uh, oil company, they clearly had stopped making some of the investments in the unconventional oil because of the prospect of the low-carbon fuel standard being adopted because they knew this would make it very difficult and expensive to exploit it. 
So this is, you know, this is the real challenge we face in the world here is we have all this fossil energy out there and we really don't want to use it. So you really see that as, as the main policy tool for, for, for getting out this, letting the market decide what types of fuels, but what, what policymakers care about is what comes out of the tailpipe much more than what goes into the, into the tank. Yeah, the low-carbon fuel set for the fuel part. You know, the other part, we ha- we've talked a little bit about the vehicle, and then there's the consumer and mobility part, part of it. Well, let, let's stick with liquids for a second. The, there's a question from the audience that asks about the mandate for corn in our, in our gasoline, so, uh, which is one way to, to one policy. And there's actually, I believe, federal law mandates a particular volume now of, of corn ethanol. Yeah, there's a federal uh, rule law called the Renewable Fuel Standard that essentially requires large amounts of corn ethanol to, pre- to be uh, produced and sold. And it's, it, it is set up so that the first 15 billion gallons, and that's a big number, of, of, of these uh, biofuels that are produced would be corn ethanol. And after that, it would have to be the so-called advanced biofuels biofuels made from cellulosic material, meaning like grasses and trees and crop residues and municipal waste. So, um, and we're, we are about at 10 billion gallons already uh, in, in this country, but it's, all, it's because of this renewable fuel standard and because we have these large subsidies for corn ethanol. So the problem with all that is, other than the, the, one of the problems is that you get no air quality benefits and you get no greenhouse gas benefits from corn ethanol for a variety of reasons. But the really, what's really wrong with that is the rule is just targeted at corn ethanol and maybe other biofuels after that. We need a broader policy. It's this idea I was talking about. You know, I hate to keep coming back to this low-carbon fuel standard, but it's an example, for the, at least for the fuels, it's an example, it's an illustration of what's needed because... You want to give industry the incentive to invest in the whatever set of different fuels out there that might m- help us reduce carbon emissions. So if that's electricity, if that's natural gas, if that's hydrogen, if that's advanced biofuels, great. But the federal, but telling, picking a winner, and then giving it a big subsidy is just not the right way to do it. So let's talk about a little bit about the car itself. Uh, we've talked about fuels. Um, batteries are one thing that uh, people are looking at. Uh, one question from the audience here is, is what will it take for the Air Resources Board to make stronger requirements for battery electric vehicles? Um, the, the, you know, the zero emission vehicle program of the California Air Resources Board has led one of the most tortured lives, lives of any rule or policy or law that's ever existed. Uh, it started in 1990, and it's been changed many times since then. Uh, the, you know, the problem is that... There's many funky acronyms <laughs> from PHEVs to have, right? I mean, they keep... Yeah, it's alphabet soup. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, you know, I probably, outside of... Well, in the auto industry, there's probably about six people that really understand the rule, you know, one in each company. And outside of that, there's maybe two or three other people. And then probably at the next level are people like me that really have followed it. And I have to confess, I don't know all the details. I don't understand all the details of this. So what we're going to do, we've made a, we have a resolution 
uh, at the Air Resources Board, that we're going to overhaul that whole program. We're going to clean it up, uh, essentially start from scratch in two ways. One is we are going to make it much stronger for battery electrics, plug-in hybrids, and fuel cell vehicles for the zero emission and near zero emission for the electric drive vehicle technologies. Um, the other part is we're going to try to make it more performance-based. And that gets a little tricky. And, you know, it's the same idea that in, I think in the policy world, we're learning that we need to make things performance-based as much as possible it's instead of picking winners, instead of coming up with these ad hoc rules. And so we'll try to come up with a performance metric that encourages the companies to produce more of these vehicles. And that's, that's what we're hoping to have a proposal, at least a draft proposal, the end of this year or early next year on that. One question from the audience about a specific, uh, this is a hybrid electric, is do you think the Chevy Volt will become a consumer reality or is it another empty promise from General Motors? That's an excellent question. <laughs> uh, I, I want to believe General Motors on this one. I want to believe that they're really committed to it. Um, but everything all of the analytical bones in my body tell me that it's hard to believe that they really are committed. And that's because they've come up with a design that's probably the most expensive way to build a plug-in hybrid vehicle. And they're, and, you know, they're kind of following the idea. So what this Volt is, it has a 40-mile all-electric range. So it has a big battery so that it can go 40 miles before you need the gasoline engine to kick in. And that's very appealing because in all our market, we do a lot of market research at UC Davis. And by the way, that when I say we, I, I need to clarify that. Sometimes the we is the Air Resources Board and sometimes it's UC Davis. Um, but we at UC Davis have done a lot of market research on uh, electric vehicles. And we've found that people really do value uh, having an electric vehicle and the, the driving feel and they like the all-electric range and it, all of that's very positive. So the question becomes, how much are people really willing to pay extra for that 40-mile range? And right now, the, co the cost, to get into, be a little wonkish here, a little technical just for a second, but a, but a Volt has a 15-kilowatt-hour battery in it. Right now, the cost for a lithium-ion battery of that type is about $1,000 per kilowatt hour. So we're talking about a $15,000 premium on top of the cost of it being a, a plug-in hybrid and a, you know, having a dual drive system. And the question, you know, even with a $7,000 subsidy, such as the stimulus package now has, you know, how many people are real, really going to buy that? Now, other, all the other car companies are following a strategy where they're going to have a small battery where you don't get the 40-mile all-electric range, but the gasoline engine and the, and the battery work together for most of the time, so you might have just five miles of all-electric range. But you get tremendous efficiency, and so you will get 100 miles per gallon uh, or something like that for some of these vehicles. And so the question is, are, and, and that's going to be a lot cheaper because it has a much smaller battery. Now, that $15,000 premium is going to come down. So that's the cost today. You know, the, the goal is to get it down to a third of that 
but it's still a $5,000 premium plus the cost of the hybrid component tree. So, you know, the, the short answer is I'm skeptical that they're really making a major commitment, but I'm hopeful they, they are. It's hard for a company that's almost bankrupt to sell a car at a loss. So if I understand what you're saying is that they've chosen, even if they wanted to continue to make the Volt uh, because of the financial situation, they couldn't continue to sell them. Well, and there may not be a market for them at the price they would need to sell it to make a profit. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, Toyota, I mean, a GM, they were really offended by Toyota uh, you know, grabbing the mantle of environmentalism and high technology with the Prius. And at the same time, they saw the lesson there. They saw that when, when Toyota was so successful with it, it meant not ne- that they made necessarily a lot of money on the Prius, and they might not have. They probably didn't make much, maybe a little bit. But it created a halo for the entire company. So now the company is seen as this very environmental, high-tech company, and it's made them made it much easier that for them to sell a lot of other products. I mean, they even went and sold, uh, started selling big, huge pickups, and they weren't criticized very much for it because they were also doing the Prius. So GM is saying, okay, we want to be a leader. We want to set ourselves aside from the in, uh, apart from the industry, and so we're not going to do just a typical plug-in hybrid like everyone else is doing. We're going to do a unique one. And they don't even like to call it a plug-in hybrid. They call it an extended range electric vehicle. So we're going to see how that plays out. But it's partly, a lot of it's positioning by the company. Do you think it's a marketing expense that they'll, they can afford to make this product at a loss? Which some of these things are, demonstration, mm-hmm. concept vehicles. They're just marketing budget to, to create an aura uh, to enable them. So would you go so far as to say it's, it's, a, it's a marketing move? Well, it's definitely a marketing move, and if they do small numbers of them, then it's it's easily worth it. It's the, and that's why I wonder how how large a volume they're going to produce. But it, you know, all this is good. You know, I don't want to be too negative or critical about GM because the future of vehicles is electric drive technology. And for instance, in the '90s, companies did the battery electrics, and they ended up giving up on it. But they learned a lot about how to do electric drive and work with batteries, and they used that to develop the hybrid vehicles. And now they're using it to come back to battery electrics and plug-in hybrids and fuel cell electrics. And so all of this is good. You know, it's investment in the technology of the future. So you know, I don't know how it's going to play out for GM but it's great that the industry is making these investments. And to be fair to them, if everybody in this room owned a Chevy Volt or an electric vehicle right now, there would be no place to plug it in in a parking garage downtown San Francisco. There would be no place on the street in San Francisco where many people park. Hopefully people would be able to uh, plug them in at home because these will be regular, not like the old electric vehicles required a modification. Mm-hmm. So isn't there a, an infrastructure uh, situation that needs to be there before consumers will feel comfortable uh, moving to plug-ins? Uh, we are definitely because, I, I mean, the plug except for the Volt, the other plug-ins, you don't have to necessarily plug them in, but we want people to plug them in. So, in fact, there's, this is the tension, is people can plug them in in the house, 
if you have a house and a garage and so on, and, and we estimate close to 50% of the households fit that in California, fit that model in California. But the, uh, you don't want them charging during the middle of the day because that's when there's peak electricity use and then you're contributing to all the problems on the grid. So on the one hand, we want that infrastructure out there to make people feel comfortable about owning an electric car or a plug-in hybrid car. On the other hand, we don't really want them to do much charging except in the evening. Well, but if they're plugged in, they could also sell back to the grid, which is the whole, not use jargon, V to G, but there's that, that's to achieve the full benefit of electrics is that it's a two-way exchange, right? Yeah, that's, that's where we'd like to go, this vehicle-to-grid idea where we can integrate the vehicles and the electricity grid together. And in the beginning, we can use them maybe just as backup to a house for, you know, for just the emergencies. But eventually, it would be good if you can sell the electricity back. And, and that way, the electricity companies don't have to add a lot of capacity at peak times because now they add capacity just for those one day or those one, uh, single hours when there's a, a spike of electricity demand. So if you have all these vehicles plugged in, they can provide that peak on those few times when it's needed. And, and that'll be, uh, may allow the electricity system to create much more, to provide electricity in a much more efficient way, not to add a lot, have to add a lot of capacity. This is, that's the long-term vision. So we talk about the electrification of the vehicles. So eventually, and, and Rick Wagner talked about this at the Commonwealth Club, the CEO of General Motors, electricity will be, will be moving cars. Another source of electricity is hydrogen, uh, something that our governor of California, Schwarzenegger, has been pretty enthusiastic about, and ARB is as well. So wh what's the big promise for hydrogen? It seems to some people that it's always just around, just over the horizon, um, never never arriving. I think the worst thing was when George Bush embraced hydrogen. Uh, <laughs> Kiss of death. That, that, that killed it. <laughs> um, hydrogen, you know, as we look toward the future, you know, as I keep saying, electric drive vehicles. And electric drive means having an electric motor. And the question is, where will the electricity come from? So it can come from the battery. It can come directly from the grid or it can come from hydrogen, where you have a fuel cell on the vehicle, and so you, you, you load hydrogen on the vehicle just like you do gasoline, and then the, this fuel cell, this device, converts the hydrogen into electricity as you need it, and it does it very efficiently uh, with, with no emissions. So it's, very, it's a very attractive technology. The problem is, one... We need to bring, you need the scale economies to bring the cost of the fuel cell down. And two, you need a, a, net, you need a network of fuel stations out there. And that's even more difficult. The advantage with electricity is we've got an electricity grid out there. We've got people that know how to use electricity and can plug it in in their house. With hydrogen, we don't have that. So in the end, it comes down to, you know, on the battery, how fast is the battery going to improve so that we really can get those battery electrics and plug-in hybrids that are uh, cost competitive. And on the fuel cell side, it's can we get the fuel cell cost down quick enough and create a hydrogen infrastructure? 
I just don't, I'm skeptical. I'm just helping me understand the incentive for building an entirely new hydrogen infrastructure when we have electric infrastructure and we have liquid fuel infrastructure. Mm -hmm. uh, wouldn't it make economic sense to leverage the infrastructure we have rather than create an entirely new infrastructure for hydrogen, which some people say is energy intensive to produce, unless you think it's a Trojan horse for, for nuclear power, which some people believe. Well, the attraction of both hydrogen and electricity is you can make either of them from almost anything. And so, you know, with hydrogen, you know, electricity, where you are, we already do that, and we can do that with hydrogen as well. So right now, hydrogen is mostly made from natural gas, uh, but it can be made from renewable sources as well. And there's actually a lot of research going into, the, there's really exotic research going into having plants that will produce hydrogen directly that can be used so there's, um, you know, clearly hydrogen is the bigger challenge for exactly this reason that we don't have a hydrogen network out there. But, but the, the huge amounts of hydrogen are being produced today. It's used for industrial purposes. So it's not that we don't know how to make it. It's made from fossil sources. But even when you make it from natural gas and you put it through a fuel cell, which is very efficient, you end up with it being much more, having much lower carbon than from a Prius, for instance, running on gasoline. So even making hydrogen from natural gas is, a, is a, an attractive option. Uh, Question from the audience says, many of the policies you recommend uh, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions are fuel-based. Uh, what do you see the role of planning in uh, reducing vehicle miles traveled and reducing carbon emissions? Yeah, I, I like to think, well, the way I characterize it is the vehicle is probably the easiest thing to change. The fuels are the next hardest, and consumers and land use are the most difficult. But they're a import, very important part of the equation. We need to, we need to design our cities to uh, reduce the sprawl, to reduce the amount of the need for vehicles. And we also need to create more choice in transportation. In fact, we're not going to really change our transportation system until we create more choice. You know, we have, we've created this, mono, what I call a monoculture, a transportation monoculture. In the United States today, cars have vanquished transit. You know, I know in being in San Francisco, it's hard to imagine that. When I was in New York yesterday, even harder to imagine it. But mass transit now only accounts for about 2.5% of passenger travel in this country, two and a half percent. And so even if we double it, it's just a small amount. And so what we need to do is make transit more appealing. And what that means is creating a whole new set of mobility services. For instance, smart jitney services. Why not, why not have a van or a vehicle that comes to your house and takes you where you want to go? How many of us really want to drive our own car and deal with the hassle of driving and parking, wouldn't we rather be chauffeured? I think, you know, there's a few of us that still, you know, want to do the driving and don't trust anyone or, and so on and want to feel the roar of the engine. Uh, but most of us would rather be chauffeured. And there is a whole other smart carpooling service, for instance. Many of us go to the same, an office. If we had an easy way of figuring out who else is going to the office at the same time and could do it electronically through cell phone or internet, you know, 
wouldn't that be? And it's not just going to the office, going to a ball game, going to any kind of event. Uh, wouldn't that work? Uh, why not have more car sharing? And you know, car sharing is starting to happen. But if we had it more widespread, then you could just and you could get easy access to it. It would really be appealing. And and so you start creating this whole set of choices where we can get rid of at least one of our cars in our household. And the average cost of owning and operating a car is $8,000. $8,000 per year. I'm sure that if we took that $8,000, we could provide you with as good service through all these other services, car sharing and smart jitneys and smart carpooling, neighborhood, maybe a na- little neighborhood car just for local use, and put all that together, we can get that for you for less than $8,000, and it'll be better. So we have this idea in our head that we have this optimal transportation system, when in fact we have probably the most inefficient, resource-intensive uh, transportation system imaginable. So we can do a better transportation, just to go on a little bit more. You know, this is something I've gotten very uh, passionate about lately, is transportation in, in many ways is the least innovative sector in our society. Some of my colleagues say, well, what about education? But okay, <laughs> apart from that. <laughs> but, you know, here we are in San Francisco, next to Silicon Valley, we've had this information technology revolution. How much of it has made, been, made its way to transportation? Almost none of it. You know, some of us have little navigation maps in our cars, and the traffic engineers use it to, you know, put up changeable message signs. But for the most part, there's been very little innovation. The, the transportation system has barely changed in 80 years in terms of the basic function, functioning of it. Amory Lovins, who spoke here recently, uh, speaks about cars as the last expression of the Iron Age or something to that effect, you know, that they haven't really changed much in, in a in century or so. We have more questions here about land planning as, as policy tools. One is, what are your views on SB 375, which is a land use law recently passed in California? And what do you see as the Air Resources Board's future role in regulating land use as a way to reduce uh, carbon emissions? The Air Resources Board will not regulate land use. <laughs> Hear that, Governor? <laughs> um, Air, land. Okay, we got that. <laughs> but, but what it will do, and this is, this is the strategy of SB, this is, SB 375 is this law that's really a first step towards managing sprawl and reducing vehicle use. And what it does is where it's headed, it will, what we'll do, we at the Air Resources Board, we will apply a target, give a target to every metropolitan area in terms of reducing vehicle travel and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And we're not going to tell them how to do it. So this is the idea. We're not going to regulate land use. That's local governments. But we'll give them incentives. We'll give the local government incentives to, re- to change and regulate land use. And... And that's the goal here. So the, the challenge, though, is cities don't have a lot of money hanging around to you know, do innovative new things. And so the challenge really is to create new funds, funding sources, the, you know, the carrots that they need. And there's two big carrots that we've been thinking about. One is uh, all of the transportation funding that comes from the federal and state government. And it comes through formulas that basically say if you have more vehicle travel, you get more money. So what we'd like to do, 
some of us would like to do is turn that around and say, if you reduce vehicle travel, you get more money, and you can use that for transit and bike paths and so on. Uh, and so that's, that's where we're going. So that's one pot of money. And the other pot of money is if we do cap and trade, which we're very likely to do, or it could be carbon taxes, some of that money could be used to help the cities and providing them an incentives. And we found that cities are very easy to bribe. Uh, they're, they're so broke <laughs> that you just offer them a little money, and they're actually quite responsive. And, uh, and you know, what we're doing at UC Davis, you know, my institute at UC Davis, Institute of Transportation Studies, we've, we've developed a very strong modeling capabilities because the, the, the problem is if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And so we need these modeling tools that the cities and the metropolitan regions can use in figuring out if they do something, what will be the effect. You know, if they do invest more in transit or bike paths then, or car sharing, then what will be the effect on vehicle travel? So there's a big program being put together, and that's, a, you know, that's an essential part of this whole process of making this law work. Dan Sperling is a member of the California Air Resources Board, and we're discussing energy and transportation at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, we have uh, other questions here about uh, particular... Uh, where did my question go? Um, questions here about batteries, whether they can be recycled and whether that they're really as um, environmentally uh, constructive as, as, the, as some people think they are. Uh, you know, some types of batteries have a lot of toxic materials in them, but I'm not too worried about this because the batteries we put in these vehicles, they're big, they're heavy, and the materials have value. And even the batteries, after they've been used in the vehicles a while, when you take them out, they have other uses. And so there's one, you just don't take these batteries and throw them in the trash. You know, you just can't do that, number one. And number two, they have a lot of value. And so even with lead-acid batteries, the little starter batteries that we have in our cars, uh, almost all, I think it's 99% of those are recycled. And, and so in this case, it's going to be even easier. Do fleets represent a way to get large numbers of low-carbon vehicles on the road? Well, there's government fleets and there's private fleets, you know, business fleets. Um, we keep trying to get government fleets to buy these vehicles, but... You know, government doesn't have a lot of money these days, and so a lot of government agencies are resistant. But I, clearly, it's important for government to be a leader. And we've been having discussions at the state level about getting the state uh, more aggressive at, at doing this. I know the city of San Francisco, uh, I was actually, you know, last week I was at a meeting with uh, Gavin Newsom, and he was talking at considerable length about all the things San Francisco is doing and how committed they are. And so that's good. You know, but we'd like to get government, uh, I mean, excuse me, uh, business fleets also. And in that case, it, some, some businesses are willing to be innovative leaders like PG&E because they have a business interest in it. But we need to create more incentives for them. So, yes. One thing that has happened here in San Francisco is, I believe it's a mandate uh, on the taxi fleet. And you see suddenly a lot of hybrid taxis in, uh, in San Francisco. Now, it costs more for the taxi companies to buy the hybrids. It costs more for the drivers to, to take out that car. 
they make it back in gas savings, and uh, consumers pay the same price to ride in a hybrid taxi as they do the old old Crown Victoria. So there's one area where, I guess, government can influence uh, private fleet purchases. Um, the uh, question here about, again, on the point of batteries, is that China seems to be in the lead. I believe uh, uh, even U.S. automakers have gone to Korean companies for, for sourcing sourcing batteries. So the question is whether the U.S. is losing its technology lead uh, in these critical technologies to countries like China and Korea and what we could do to get that back. Yeah, you know, I mean, the China story is a fascinating one. They have the largest, most successful electric vehicle industry in the world. But it's different than what you might think. It's electric motorcycles and scooters. They sold, in 2007, they sold 15 million electric motorcycles, bikes, and scooters. And, you know, these tend to be small, and they have small batteries, and most of the batteries are lead-acid, and it's fairly primitive technology. But there's so many companies involved in this and they're learning very fast how to build these motors and systems better. And many of these companies are moving up scale, and now they're starting to build small electric cars. You know, there's one company that uh, Warren Buffett uh, invested quite a bit of money in BYD in China that builds electric and plug-in hybrid vehicles and was a battery company originally. So um, there's a very good chance that the, that the uh, motivation and the investment in electric vehicles will come out of, out of China uh, for those reasons. You mentioned earlier you wanted to talk about the sources of innovation. So is, is that w- where you think innovation is going to come from, from startups, whether they're U.S. or, or American, and, and that Detroit is, is never going to create the, the breakthroughs or, or the big innovations that will get to, uh, to cleaner cars? Well, clearly, you know, the, the individual technologies it, all through history have been developed by smaller uh, companies. And the Detroit companies don't make batteries. And so they, they look to other companies to be suppliers. So GM, for instance, I, I know 10 years ago I looked and, and something like 50 to 60% of the value added came from their suppliers, not from GM itself. And so what they do, and I just saw actually on the plane the other day, I saw the movie about the windshield, the intermittent windshield wiper, yeah, right. uh, where, you know, the guy went, you know, had a, a mental breakdown because Ford stole the technology from him. But that's an example of a lot of the, you know, that's a sad story. <laughs> uh, the guy won in the end, but uh, he won the lawsuits in the end after many, many years. But it's an example that there is a lot of entrepreneurship and, and, Innovation is going to come from entrepreneurship, and so we do need to uh, encourage all of these innovative companies and individuals to come up with these technologies, and, and, and that is where the, the innovation is going to come, much of the innovation. The big companies, though, you know, they, they, you know they're, they're like you know, big ships in the ocean, but they do change, and they you know, look at hybrid vehicles. You know. Does that matter where it comes from as long as it happens? I mean, should we really care? This, there was a Buy American provision in the, in the bailout or the stimulus package recently, or, or should it, we not be concerned of where it comes from and just that it happens by whoever can do it best? Well, you know, we live in California. We live in America. We certainly want industry uh, in California and the U.S. 
to be more productive and we want more jobs and more economic activity here. So certainly it's in our interest as citizens to support uh, more innovation in this country. But, in, but you know, we, all also, we are also part of a global economy and we should be very happy when there is innovation elsewhere as well and figure out how, you know, we want to do our share of the innovation, but we want others. You know, we've, we're not dominating the world like, you know, perhaps the United States isn't like it was 30 or 40 years ago. And we have to accept that. As Fareed Zakaria calls, uh, it's the rise of the rest, what we're seeing, the emerging middle class. A question here uh, from middle class in China and India. question from the audience about how the low-carbon fuel standard would account for future implementation of new technologies such as carbon capture and storage that could change the emissions coming from oil. Yeah, and so I was perhaps a little harsh on unconventional oils, uh, before, but there are some circumstances in which those unconventional oils can be produced, where the fuels can be produced with a relatively low carbon way. The most extreme example of that would be where you take coal and you gasify it, make hydrogen, and the hydrogen has no carbon in it, and so all of the carbon that's been released in producing the hydrogen can be captured and sequestered, and you can end up with a fuel cycle in which you have near zero emissions, even though you made it from coal. Now, the problem with that, well, several problems with that. One is, you know, the whole issue we talked about with hydrogen fuel cells, um, but the other is capture and storage of, of carbon emissions. I'm a strong believer that we better make that work because most of the 21st century is still going to be fossil energy. And if we don't get that, some of those carbon emissions down soon, uh, the world is in, in, in deep trouble, or at least with a 95% prob probability the world's in deep trouble uh, with climate change. So we've, we've got to do something about carbon emissions from fossil energy, and capture and storage is you know, the best option we have to do that though it's not working now anywhere, correct? It, it is working. There's, there, have been various, uh, in, there have been various programs around the world. In Norway, they've been sequestering carbon uh, in the North Sea for a while. It's been done in a more, for other reasons, in Texas and Oklahoma, they, they take uh, the carbon dioxide and use it to, to, uh, for an en enhanced oil recovery to get more oil out of the ground, so they pump the carbon in. The, the, the real, so it's, everyone knows how to do this. The, the only real question is, can we make sure the carbon stays in the ground and doesn't leak out? Because even if you have small leakage, you know, it starts accumulating. And, you know, like in Texas and Oklahoma, you know, they've perforated the land with so many oil wells that they don't even know where all the holes in the ground are. And so there has to be a much better effort made at making sure that the carbon really will stay in the ground. But there's a lot of uh, places, a lot, a, lot a lot of scientists believe that it can be done. And this is, you know, this is part of the big picture here, is that there is no silver bullet solution. I mean, we're talking about transforming our society, transforming our economy uh, in, because of oil and carbon. And we've got to be doing a whole lot of different things. 
And some of them are going to work better than others. You know, we should be doing electric vehicles. We should be doing fuel cells. We should be doing biofuels. And we should be doing capture and storage. And, and you know, maybe nuclear, if we can figure out some of the problems with nuclear. And because we're going to need it all. We're going to need it all. And, and it's very risky to think that, you know, that we can pick one or two or three solutions and think that's going to bail us out. Silver buckshot. Uh, another thing about uh, carbon leakage is that it's odorless and it's an asphyxiant. And I've heard people talk about concern that if you put it in the ground somewhere, there needs to be some liability, concern about it not leaking up in someone's basement and, uh, or, or in, in a building somewhere, and you can't smell it, and all of a sudden you've got a real, you've got a real problem there. Yeah, I, I understand. I'm not an expert in that. I understand that's pretty unlikely if you have some kind of controls. You know, there was a situation in uh, Africa where there was this bubble of carbon dioxide for natural reasons. It bubbled out of the, out of the lake and, uh, and spread around the lake and killed, I don't know, I think hundreds of people, asphyxiated them. So it, it can happen. In that case, it was natural reasons. But, you know, if we have some kind of controls, you know, on this, we should be able to make it work in some circumstances and and you know one of the real risks with this is is this idea that we want everything to be perfect and so as a result of that we we might treat carbon dioxide like nuclear waste and people will start demonstrating you know san francisco is a great illustration of that you know people like to demonstrate against everything and you can block uh, these things and you know many in many cases it's good you know that's you know, that's the strength of our democracy. But it also, you know, if CO2 is treated like nuclear waste, it makes the whole thing more expensive and more difficult, and it kills off that whole option before we even get a chance to do it, to try it. Dan Sperling is a member of the California Air Resources Board, and we're discussing energy and transportation at the Commonwealth Club. We're getting close to the end here, and I want to touch on one major policy thing that we, we haven't touched on yet, which is the waiver uh, that California has requested from the federal government uh, to impose stricter emission standards than the federal standards, and President Obama has indicated, uh, made favorable noises about this, so what's the status of that, and how do you think it'll play out? W will California get it, and what will be the, will it become a national standard? Well, you know, as an academic, I like to stick to the science uh, and, and not be an advocate of some of particular policies. But, you know, this is a case where this isn't like the low-carbon fuel standard. It's just good policy uh, to, uh, to, increase, to increase the greenhouse gas standards and fuel economy standards of our vehicles. So the question, what's going to happen, um, every indication we've gotten from the Obama administration is that it, it, they are going to approve it. Now, in the end, there could be some negotiations because, and there are some nice, you know, niceties to it because, for instance, you can have, the way it's set up now is every state, it's not only California that's adopted, but 14 other states. And so if each one has, exact, has a standard and each uh, company has to meet the standard in each state, then it, it gets a little cumbersome. So, you know, one change you can make is all the states that approve it can have a trading or averaging system across them. So we might need to make some changes like that, and that might be some of the negotiations. Uh, eventually, 
and I understand the governor, when he was here, he made the point that uh, everyone should just do, you know, imitate California, and then there's no problem. Follow us, uh, and you'll all be fine, yes. <laughs> And, and you know this is one of those policies that does make a lot of sense, but it's going to be, but it's difficult. It's painful for the some of the car companies. It'll be rel, it'll be probably quite easy for Honda to make it, uh, Toyota not too hard, but for the Detroit companies, it's going to be more difficult. So again, we get back to this. You know, this is where we got frozen with policy for two decades on cafe stand, on fuel economy standards. Is that? If you do it, it dis, you know it's perceived, and in fact, it does disadvantage the, de- the Detroit companies. And so we go back: Are we concerned about our domestic industry, or not? And so this is kind of a question of how important is climate reduction, climate change, uh, greenhouse gas emission reduction, and, and energy security. And there is a little bit of tension, and and I think the the mood has shifted towards favoring. Uh, climate change policy and energy security over trying to sustain uh, the Detroit companies. And on that, we'll have to end it. And thanks to Dan Sperling, a member of the California Air Resources Board and professor at University of California, Davis. I'm Greg Dalton, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club celebrating 105 years of enlightened engagement is adjourned.